Okay, hello friends. I hope you all had an enjoyable Yom Tov. Uh, welcome to the Chabura Public Shield, where we'll be exploring the world of Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin. Uh, leading us in our exploration today is Dr. Roy Shasha. Dr. Shasha has a PhD in theology from Manchester University. He has edited and published 12 books and many more articles of works by Sefaradi Chachamim. He is currently engaged in collecting and publishing the works of Rav Shem Tov Gagin, including a new edition of the Keter Shem Tov. He has already published two volumes of his sermons, including a number of his smaller manuscripts. Uh, Dr. Shasha is a, is a lifelong member of the SP community and has written the most modern monograph on the history and the printing of the SP prayer book in England. He has made Aliyah nine years ago and lives in our Irbira, Yerushalayim. It is a privilege to have him here with us. Uh, before we begin, I want to remind everyone about our Sukkot book that the Chabra Publishing House uh, just put out. Um, our book includes essays from past Chachamim, teachers of the present, and a selection of our members from around the world. Um, I actually have the privilege of having my essay in the book as well. Uh, make sure to get yourself a copy. It is on Amazon Prime, so you can get one before the Malayad is over. Uh, with that said, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. And thank you so much, Dr. Shasha. The floor is yours. Okay, Ohad. Share the screen. Ooh. I look on the screen. Am I live now? Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, super. Okay, let's let's get started then. And thanks everyone for joining me. I'm in Jerusalem now, and I'm sitting in my lounge in about two miles from where Shem Tokagin was born. I came from Manchester, which is where Rabbi Shem Tokagin lived part of his life and passed away. It occurred to me in the course of writing, editing some of his manuscripts, behind the Kete Shem Tov, which is a book that deals with Minhagim and with customs of Jews from all over the world, that there is a backstory to this. And without the backstory, it's a little bit hard to appreciate. So what I, to, what, I, what I wanted to do this evening is to talk a little bit about his life, his times, his family, and the community with which he grew up. And from there, see how this affected his writing. We'll talk about the Ketashem Tov uh, and look at one or two examples of the customs that he, uh, that he mentions there. And then after that, we'll look at, hopefully at some of the manuscripts that he, uh, he left behind him. And I'm going to make the suggestion from now that whilst he will always be known for the Kete Shem Tov, and it is, it is the most complete work and his longest work, maybe it wasn't necessarily his greatest achievement in this world, as perhaps we'll see. Anyway, let's start by looking at his family's history. The Gagin family came from Spain. We know that they came from Castile, and they lived for a while in Fez. And sometime probably in the 16th or, or, or the early part of the 17th century, they found themselves in Jerusalem. And for many generations, there were great scholars, rabbis, they left books behind, some in manuscripts, some printed. And he came from a long, long tradition of rabbis, of sages, and of teachers. What is interesting is that he has rabbinical blood on many different sides of his family. And I'm going to start off by talking about another strand of his family, which is um, his great, great, great grandfather. He was a Rashash, Rav Shalom Sharabi, and he came from Yemen to Jerusalem in the 18th century, in the middle of the 18th century. And he was one of the foremost Kabbalists of Jerusalem. And he was appointed the head of a was called the Yeshiva of Betel. Yeshiva is not the Yeshiva of Betel was not what you might call Yeshiva today, in that it was not for unmarried young pupils, but for the most senior sages of Jerusalem at the time, all of which were great Kabbalists and tremendous Talmudi Hachamim. And he was a, he was in, he was a, he was the head of the head of the Yeshiva, and his daughter married Rabbi Shem Tov Gagin's great grandfather, who was Rabbi Avram Gagin, who was the Rishon Sion. He was a Hambashi uh, appointed by the Sultan in uh, in Istanbul, and he also led the Yeshiva of Betel. He was a great Kabbalist, as was Rabbi, Shar uh, Rabbi Sharabi, and he also left uh, a number of important books behind him. His son was called Rav Shalom Moshe Gagin, 
he also was a Kabbalist. He he served in the in the Shiva Betel also, and he was a, a Diane in Jerusalem. His one of his children was Ravizak again, who served as the Menahel of the Shiva Betel. He was also a noted Kabbalist and also uh, was a leading dignitary in Jerusalem. And his eldest son was Shem Tov Gagin. And he was born in Jerusalem in 1884. We don't know that much about his early life, but his parents made one decision, a major decision, which was somewhat quirky for the time. And that is that they sent him to a school called Doresh Sion. Doresh Sion was a very radical school for Jerusalem at that time because part of the curriculum was devoted to secular studies, the teaching of foreign languages and basic maths and geography and history and whatever, apart from a Limude Kodesh curriculum. And at the time, this was, as I said, a very revolutionary and way out thing to do for, uh, for, uh, for the orthodox life of the old Yishu. And there are reports of the Hebra Kaddish of Jerusalem leaving their funeral cart outside the headmaster's door. This was a traditional sign of communal disapproval of, uh, of the institution. And there's also one report of uh, attempted physical violence against the pupils in the school during the during school time. But fortunately, Shem Kagin passed through all of these things and he received this slightly quirky education. Why his parents sent him there, sent him there I don't know. But otherwise, his upbringing was with that of any other Yeshiva student of his time. He was initiated into the rites of the Kabbalah at a very early age by a, by a, uh, by a haham of the Yeshiva Betel called Haham Alafi, who I think was, uh, was uh, of Syrian origin. And life would have continued for him like any other young Yeshiva student. He might have got a, a place in the, in, in, in the Yeshiva, he might have got a, a place in the Betel in Jerusalem, but the one above had different plans for him. In 1910, the Turkish government introduced a mandatory military draft, and a lot of the young uh, young people in the in the Holy Land took fright of this and escaped. And he escaped to uh, to Cairo, where he got a job on the Beddin as a as a dayan, specialising in gitin. And he had in his life two what I call light bulb moments, and one of them, I believe, was in Egypt. And the second one, we're going to come to in a few minutes, uh, was in Manchester. But what happened in Egypt? He was browsing through an old book, uh, which was an old copy of the Shulhan Ruch that was printed in the lifetime of the Mahaber, Rabbi Yosef Karo, uh, sometime in the, in the 16th, early part of the 16th century. And he looked at one particular siman, which dealt with the subject of Kaparot. And he found that there was a title to this section in the Shulhan Ruch, which said, Kaparot minhag shtut, which means kaparot minhag of stupidity. And this, this title for uh, kaparot minhag shtut was suppressed in later editions. And this is something that caught his attention. And he writes about it in one of the manuscripts he left behind from this period when he was in, uh, was in Cairo. And we'll come to this a little, little bit later on. He got married in Cairo and had at least one child there, and there were certain rumblings in the community in Cairo, which he didn't like very much. And he, in 1920, he got an invitation to come to Manchester. Now, the community in Manchester, there was a Sephardi community in Manchester, but it consisted of two completely different strands. One strand was the establishment strand of the Spanish and Portuguese Jews, which is not the strand that he went to. Because of the decline and fall of the Ottoman Empire, a lot of Jews who were living in the Ottoman Empire took fright and they came to Manchester, thinking it was a safer place. And also they came, they came for political reasons and also they came for economic reasons. Because at the time, Manchester was the warehouse, of the, was, the, was the manufacturing of the world. And most of, these, uh, most of the people who came had trade connections throughout the Middle East. And it was easy for them to go and have an, uh, someone in Manchester, especially a family member, who could assist in exporting goods from there to, uh, to the Middle East. So there were two communities that were living side by side. And eventually they formed two separate congregations that lived 
side by side, and they prayed in two synagogues. One was about three or four hundred yards from the other. Literally, it was four or five minutes walk away. And as a youngster growing up in this community, I could never understand why are there two synagogues, two Sephardi synagogues, in this particular area of Manchester? Couldn't these two groups have ever got their heads together? But from a little bit my father told me about it, I gathered there was some lack of commonality between them, but I never really got to the bottom of it until, uh, 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 until I was older. Fate intervened again in his life. And in 1927, he was appointed the head of Montefiore College, which was in Ramsgate. I've got to explain now what Montefiore College was. So Moses Montefiore had his main residence on the south coast of England in a place called Ramsgate, a gorgeous little Georgian town on the south coast of England. And he built a synagogue there, and around him grew up a small Jewish community. When his wife passed away, he set up a yeshiva there in memory of his wife, and he wanted to attract people who would study in memory of his late wife. The college had been semi-dormant and needed, needed a leader, and so he was appointed in 1927 as the head of the, uh, as the, head of the college. Before that, these, I should have mentioned, in, in 1921, the Spanish and Portuguese community had appointed him to be the Abed Din. So it was a natural fit with him because Moses Montefiore was part of the Spanish and Portuguese establishment in the UK. And he and all his family packed up the bags from Manchester and went to live in Ramsgate. And these were the most productive years of his life. He had colleagues that he could go and uh, discuss Jewish matters with at a very high level. He had a vast collection of manuscripts in the library of Montefiore College at his disposal and a vast collection of printed books. And he was very happy. And as I said, this was the most productive, these were the most productive years of his life. In 1934, he, saw, he published the first two volumes of his book, The Ketashemto, where he looks at, uh, at the minhagim of the Spanish and Portuguese community and of uh, verses, the customs of other, of other Sephardi communities and that of the Ashkenazi communities. But I'll talk more about this book a little bit later, later on. Uh, I want to go push on ahead with the, with the story of his life. Fate intervened again in his life in 1939 when the Second World War broke out. Ramsgate, being on the south coast of England, was in the direct line of, of German bombers, and also the port itself was of crucial importance to the British naval effort in the Second World War. And so all the civilian population was evacuated. And he was evacuated to another town in Kent, had a very, very small Jewish community, a place called Tunbridge, Tunbridge Wells. And in this time, he, could, he had to leave his library behind. And many times in the Ketesh Shemtov, in the subsequent volumes that he wrote, he laments the fact that he's, in, uh, he's away from his library, he's away from his regular place of work, he's short of books, and uh, he complains that this book isn't to hand, that book isn't to hand. But he had notes that he brought with him, and he had plenty of time to go and, uh, to, to go and write. At the end of the war, he went back to Ramsgate, but by that stage, the community had left and nobody, none of the, none of, none of the residents of Ramsgate, other than the, the members of the college, wanted to come back again. So he retired in 1949 and he went to live in Manchester. And there he passed away in 1953. That, in short, is a story of his life. And we're going to see that the scarcity of books and the Second World War impacted greatly on his book, The Keter Shem Tov. So let's look a little bit at what he tries to do in this book, in the, in the series of books, The Keter Shem Tov. It is the most monumental work, and the most thorough work that I know, dealing with laws and customs of Jews throughout the world. He has, he mentions their laws and uh, customs of communities that are long since dead and gone. For example, he mentions a Sephardic community in the Crimea of all places, in a place called Kaso Bezir. He mentions customs of the, of the Karaite community that he's seen in Jerusalem. He mentions customs of a little town in France called Carpentras, which was one of the few places in France, together with Avignon, where the Jews were not expelled and could live, uh, 
live in peace in France in the Middle Ages. And all of these sources he pulls together and he compares and contrasts the, uh, the customs of each community uh, that he knew. The other thing is that rather oddly for his time, he made field trips to go and explore other Sephardi communities, to look at their customs and try and record them at first hand. They would say to me, what's the big deal about making a field trip to some foreign country? And it's hard to explain to people, especially people who are, uh, who are used to the internet, who are used to Airbnb and um, booking things on the internet. It's hard to imagine how hard it was to go and plan a trip and how expensive it was to go and plan a trip without all of these things. And we know, for example, that he made four trips to Spain and Portugal. In one of those trips, he went to Madrid. He wanted want to go to the National Library. It was closed because the day that he reserved in his mind to go there was a national holiday and he couldn't, uh, he couldn't go there. On, uh, in the same trip, he went to Barcelona and he went, wanted to go to the library, the Central Library in Barcelona and it was closed for refurbishment. All of these things he could have planned very easily had he had the internet, but it wasn't and this, this, this hampered his work. But we know that he went across Europe, he went to France, he went to Vienna, he went four times to Spain, and then he went to Gibraltar, and then he went to Morocco. All the customs that he see, he see, he saw, he recorded them in his, in, uh, in his notes. Eventually, he spoke about them in the Ketashemko. So let's dwell for a few minutes now on this book, uh, this, this book and what, what, what it does and what uh, the pattern that he finds. He looks starting, uh, first of all, the, uh, the customs of the Spanish and Portuguese community in England and in Amsterdam. And he contrasts these with the customs of the Oriental Jews. And then looks at the wider, uh, the, the wider Jewish community, including the Ashkenazim, and sees how these customs fit together or don't fit together. And the story behind them, then the history, the history behind them. But also he looks at other issues. For example, uh, he looks at the way that prayers are formulated and how the rules of, and the rules that Rabbi is used to, to go and create, to create prayers in the language that we know. For example, we're celebrating now the festival of Sukkot. We make the blessing every day, except for Shabbat, al natilat lulav, to take the lulav. But why, what, what, why the rabbis pick this expression, al natilat lulav? The Torah tells us, you should take it for yourself on the first day and then all, all, all the species that we bring together. The rabbis, as a rule, tried to go and copy the language of the Torah. So why, when the Torah says, for the lahem, the rabbis make a blessing, al natilat lulav. Also, what is the form of this blessing, al natilat lulav, or al tibilat kelim? Why do we say al something or another? When, when, when do we say to do something like leishev basuka, with just a direct infinitive? What rules govern these things? These are the types of issues that he looks at, the language of the prayer, the meaning of the prayer, and the customs that are associated with them. And he comes to the conclusion very, very rapidly that the Spanish and Portuguese Jews have very little Kabbalistic input into their prayers, whereas the Oriental Jews have a large Kabbalistic input into their prayers. And the question is, why? What caused such a big rupture in Sephardi Jewry that this would happen? And one of the problems I find with the Kedesh Shem Tov is I used to go and dip into it a little bit here and a bit there for this festival or that festival. It's only when you go through the whole book from end to end that you can get a picture and connect various dots that he, uh, from, here, uh, from here and there to go make a comprehensive story. And in the course of working on this new edition of the Kedesh Shem Tov, Something, uh, something, occurs, something occurred to me. I was looking in the volume that deals with Kippur. And in Musaf, all of a sudden, the story stops very abruptly. There's nothing on half of Musaf and half, uh, for only half of Musaf, nothing on the end of Musaf and nothing on Micha and nothing on Neila. So fortunately, I was in contact with 
Shemtoki Gein's grandson, who kindly made available to me the manuscript of this section, of, 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 the, of, of, this, of, of this work, and sent me scans of it. And I found that half of this volume was actually never printed. Why? I don't know. But it's one thing that certainly that I want to go and put into this new edition. What in this in the unpublished part of the Keteshemtov that uh, that I've got in my possession, he talks about why it is that the Spanish and Portuguese Jews don't have anything or very little to do with the Kabbalah in their Nosatubila or, or their Minhagim. And what he writes is as follows, which is which never really had a previously occurred to me before. Kabbalah started to be promulgated throughout Europe through the pupil, after the time of the pupils of the pupils of the Arizal went around and tried to publicize the new teachings of the Ari. And this was more either just before or just after the time of Shabbatai Tzvi. Before that, Kabbalists tend to keep themselves themselves and their, 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 their teachings were kept within a small clique among, amongst their own group, their own pupils, their own synagogue, whatever it was. They, they didn't go out to the, to the masses. It was only around the time of Shabbatai Tzvi that people, the, 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 the rabbis started to go out to, to the broader Jewish public and to go and bring them these new teachings of the, uh, not new, the, the, the teachings of the Kabbalah through, uh, as taught by the Arizal and how these would affect or could, could or should affect Jewish, Jewish practice. And the Spanish and Portuguese Jews turned around and said, we respect you, we respect the Kabbalah, but we don't want to go and change from the traditions that we see from our parents and our, uh, and our grandfathers. They, they took with them basically the, the prayer book that they had in Spain and they transported it all the way over to Amsterdam. And they kept these prayers more or less intact. And they did not want to make any changes to it. And they said, look, the Ari comes along and tells us we should make all of these changes for a variety of different reasons, maybe very valid reasons. But we want to stick to what we've got. And if we would accept the changes of the Arizal, someone may come in a hundred years' time and come and say, say introduce more prayers uh, here, more psalms there, more Ma'amare Chazal there. And there'll be no end to the matter. The, the liturgy will just grow and grow and grow. So we'll stick with what we've got and what, what we know. And also, our community is not the most learned of communities. I'm sure they said to those that wanted to promulgate the ideas of the Kabbalah, I'm sure your ideas are very useful, but for a community like ours, it's not going to be a much help. We are who we are, and we don't want to make any changes, not because we disagree with what you've got to say, but because it's just the time is not right for us at the moment. And they excluded anything to do with Kabbalah from their prayers, with one or two exceptions. For example, if you look in the Hoshanot of, um, of Hoshana Rabbah, you'll see references there to all of the Sefirot. And this comes from a, from a piyut, a long piyut, that was authored in Spain before the expulsion. Also, the Spanish and Portuguese have a custom of taking five aravot, five willow leaves, on uh, five, five twigs of willow leaf on Hoshana Rabbah uh, to beat. And... Rabbi Gagin wonders, how come the, 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 the Spanish and Portuguese have actually got the same custom as the Kabbalists? So it's possible that some, some Kabbalistic ideas, some Kabbalistic practices found their way into the, into the, in, in, into the prayers of the Spanish and Portuguese Jews. What I want to try and do now is to look in the Keter Shemtov and see the, see the types of things, the issues that he addresses and how he looks at this tension between the Kabbalah and the practice of the Spanish and Portuguese Jews. And I'm gonna take now three examples. In one example, there is an outright collision between the custom of the Spanish and Portuguese Jews and the, customs, uh, the custom of the Kabbalists. In another example, what the Kabbalists say, they argue is an improvement on, on the, on the uh, on the formulation of the present Spanish and Portuguese Jews. And in, the, and in the third case that I want to mention, the Spanish and Portuguese Jews say that the Kabbalists are wrong. So let's look at all of these cases now and flesh them out a bit and put some, uh, put some uh, little bit of meat into this, uh, what's been previously uh, a theoretical discussion.
Um, what I'm going to do now is this. I'm going to show, share with everybody a picture. This is the prayer book of Menashe ben Israel, which dates from 1636. And you'll see very clearly, Oden del Selichot de Arbit. This is the custom of saying Selichot after Arbit. What is this? The Spanish and Portuguese Jews in Amsterdam and in London, as far as I know, are the only congregations that have Selichot in the evening throughout the month of Elul and through the Assertium Yomet Shuvah. And it's a small, small version of Selichot. It's not the full thing that you'll say in the morning, but this is just an abbreviation, two or three pages, just to go and get you in the mood. So you might say to me, what's the Kabbalah got to do with it? What is the big objection to saying Selichot at night? So the, uh, the Chita Rabbi Yosef Chaim David Zulai in his book Birke Yosef, which is a commentary on the Shulhan Aruch, discusses this matter. He says as follows, that nighttime, especially before Hatzot, is a time of din, of divine, strict divine judgment. And in this time of strict divine judgment, it's not really the best time to go and tell God all the wrong things that you've done and you're sorry about it because you get met with strict justice, which is not what you want. It's far better to go and do it towards the morning time, which is a time of divine mercy. And then if you tell God, I'm sorry, I've done X, Y, and Z, I'm very sorry about it, you're likely to get a little bit of a better reception. But this is a very old custom of the Spanish and Portuguese Jews. And I'm sure that since the time of Menashe ben Israel, who was himself something of a Kabbalist, until the present, both in London and in Manchester, there were many of, the, of, uh, of our congregation that were well aware of the teachings of the Kabbalah and were well aware of what Rabbi Azulai wrote and were well aware that their, their practice was in direct contradiction with, with this particular teaching of the Kabbalah. But nevertheless, they persisted with it. I'm told that in London now, this custom has now ceased and Silihot is no longer said in the evenings, be that as it may. So here we've got an example of the Spanish Portuguese doing, doing one particular, having a particular custom, an old, long established custom, which is in direct contradiction to the teachings of the Kabbalah. The next example that I want to talk about is the custom of Kaparot, waving a chicken around one's head on the evening of Kippur and then slaughtering the chicken. Okay, now I've got here a copy of the Shulhan Aruch, which you may not recognize because there are no glosses here of Ramosha Isidis, the Ramah. This was printed in Venice in 1567. And we, if we look in the top left-hand corner, Simanta Fresh Hay, and it says here quite clearly, Minhag Kaparot, Minhag Shel Shtut. This is a custom of stupidity. Whereas if you look in the, in, in, in the writings of the, of the Rizal in Shara Kavanot, he goes to great lengths to describe the, the capitalist importance of this practice. How do we get then this contradiction, so such a blatant contradiction between the Kabbalah and what the Shunan has to go and say? And how does Rabbi Shem Tukhagin, as a Kabbalist himself, go and treat this matter? And here, possibly, possibly, Rabbi Shem Tukhagin is slightly ambivalent. How does he deal with this matter? What does he actually do? So, as is his way, he starts off by looking at the source of this practice. And he mentions a Rashi in Shabbat, which is on the source sheet that I sent to everyone, uh, I sent around, where Rashi mentions the practice as is recorded in the, in, in, in the response of the Gaonim. And what he says is this, that the original practice at the time of the Gaonim was as follows, that people would take a basket made out of little strips of palm and put in it dung and all sorts of uh, rotten stuff to, go, uh, to make a fertile base. And sometime in the month of Elul, they would sow a few seeds inside it and the seeds would sprout. And then they would go, either Erev Rosh Hashanah or Erev Kippur or Erev Hoshana Rabbah, 
with a family and take this basket and throw it into the right river. And they would say the same formula that we say, that this is in place of a, a divine punishment on us. And they would throw this basket into the river. And that is the end of the matter. So it was a very vegan friendly option. The custom of, of doing kaparot with a chicken seems to have come from Eastern Europe. It's recorded in, 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 in the writings of the, of the, of the Maharil who lived in, uh, in France or Germany in the 11th or the part of the 12th century. And it seems to have been restricted to, to, uh, to, Eastern, to, to Eastern Europe. The Rashbai, which I've also, I think it's source number six in the source sheet that I sent around, mentions this custom uh, as in having inquired from a rabbi from Montpellier about the rectitude of this custom. And he suggests that he doesn't like the idea. He doesn't like the idea of slaughtering a chicken. Is it, maybe it's like slaughtering a, slaughtering a sacrifice, which is not something that we do nowadays. And he's not very happy with the idea. And he says, in where he lived, fortunately, he was able to stamp out this practice completely. However, the Ari and the Kabbalists attach great weight to this custom. And they say it's very important. And, uh, and it's a genuine Jewish practice, but the Spanish and Portuguese Jews never accepted it in the first place. How does Rabbi Shem Dukudin think about this? As he was a Kabbalist himself, he doesn't actually tell us. But what he does instead is that he tells us a story that happened in Manchester. And he says, he says that this story happened 22 years before he wrote this passage. So I guess it was sometime around 1920. He mentions, first of all, that the Moroccan Jews had a practice that if somebody would die in a family, they would slaughter a chicken and take the chicken to the a graveyard, and they would hope that the death of the chicken would would, uh, would stop anything further bad happening to this particular to this family. And of course, in Manchester, there was a Moroccan family. He doesn't say who, who lost two children, Baminan, in very rapid succession, and they had a third child, and they really got the wind up. So they called the shohet to the house, and he told the shohet, the head of the house told the shohet to slaughter two chickens. He slaughtered the chickens and he told them to go and take them to the, to the graveyard. The shohet goes off to the graveyard with, his, uh, with blood on his clothes and this bag. And he goes and asks the graveyard attendant to go and open the, the gates so he could go in. And the graveyard attendant was mildly suspicious why this person was turning up with blood on his garments and this bag containing heaven knows what. And so he looked to see what was going on. And he saw that the shohet was going to a grave, excavating, stuck this bag inside it, covered it up and went out. And, he, and, this, and the graveyard attendant called the window. He called the police. And after that, everybody in the community was dead, was literally shaking. They didn't know what would happen. Fortunately, the truth came out and everything was okay and the matter subsided. But I'm suspecting that Shem Tokagin was in himself conflicted how to go and deal with this matter. How can, you, how can the Shulchan Aruch say one thing? And the author of Shulchan Aruch himself was uh, familiar with the teachings of the Zohar, was familiar with at least some of the teachings of the Rizal. They lived in Sfat at the same time. They cannot not have known each other over each other and come out with two completely different stories. And so I leave this as a question mark. The third example I want to take is the example of, uh, of Nerot Hanukkah. And I have here to give a bit of a, bit of a, a background to it. The Spanish-Portuguese Jews have the custom of saying the blessing of the menorah will have leak ne'er shel Hanukkah. In the same way that we say a blessing on the lights of the Shabbat, will have leak ne'er shel Shabbat, we say a blessing will have leak ne'er shel Hanukkah. According to the teachings of the Rizal, you should say the blessing without the word shell. You should say will have leak ne'er Hanukkah, not shel Hanukkah. What's the big deal about these two letters, shin and lamad, shell, one word? that would make 
it preferable that they were omitted from the prayers. So we have to here to understand what prayer is according to the Kabbalists. And I find it's hard to explain because I'm not a Kabbalist myself. But what I can do is as follows. I'm going to share with you now a page from the prayer book of Rav Shalom Sharabi, who I mentioned before was the father of the wife of his great-grandfather, the Rishon Etzion of Abraham Gagin. And this is a bit of an eye-opener, because this is, you'll see here two words, Yitkadal Kadash. This is the Kaddish of Tishtabah, uh, the Kaddish of uh, before Yod Ser. And after, when these two words are said, all the data underneath is, is supposed to convey something to a Kabbalist, various meditations, permutations of the divine name with different vowelings, which means something to someone who's initiated into this rite. So what I'm trying to get at is, I can't describe to you what Kabbalah is, but what I can say is that it's a form of prayer uh, which runs in parallel to that which you would understand as prayer, but is on a completely different plane and is impossible to explain to someone who is not initiated uh, in, into, this, into this rite. Let's go back now and consider first uh, a more basic question. What actually is mysticism? From a Jewish point of view, and then from here we'll understand why. Why? The, what, what is the big objection to these two words, uh, the two letters, Shin and Lamet Shell? You take into the blessing. In order to simplify a long philosophical discussion, I'm going to suggest that there are two attitudes towards Judaism. There are two philosophical attitudes that you can take. One is what I'm going to call, very roughly, a rationalist approach, which will tell us, which says as follows: that the sum total of what you can get from doing a mitzvah is for yourself is a form of character training. For example, God does something kind to you. He, bring, he, brings, you, he, he brings you food, performs a miracle. You thank him. So you train yourself to be grateful to God for all the things that he does, an act of gratitude. If it is that this act may have some effect whatever it is, in some higher world, so be it. It's not something that you can directly influence yourself, other than by doing the act in a proper way, by saying the words in the proper intention and performing the act in a decent and honourable and straightforward way with the best intentions that you can. A Kabbalist would say no. A mitzvah is more, in, in, in some total, training of the character. Man can effect through his actions very positive things in the mystical world. And in terms of prayer, you can do this by saying certain prayers with, with a, certain, a certain number of words or by arranging the prayers so that certain initials fall, or fall out in the way that you say your prayers. For example, the Kabbalistic version of the, of the prayer of Baruch Shemar got 87 words in it. Why? I don't really know, but for them, it is important that this prayer has 87 words in it and no more. As far as the, the, the blessing for the menorah, we said, we said the Kabbalists say, Lahatlik Ner Hanukkah, and this forms the initials Nun, Ner, Chet of Hanukkah, and Lamed, Nachal. And for them, these three letters have a certain specific mystical meaning. And the Benish Hai tells us two of these meanings, and probably the, 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 there, are, the, there are many more. In the 13 attributes that, uh, of divine mercy, that, that in the prayer that Moses uh, uh, offers to God, it says, No ser chesed l'alafim, who leaves over kindness for, uh, for a thousand generations. And the Benish Hai also says that there's a verse in Psalm, in, in Psalm, Psalm 30. Our soul waits for God. There again, you've got the three letters, Nun, Chet, and Lamed. What the significance of these three letters is, as I said, I don't know. But nevertheless, it is deemed by the Kabbalists sufficiently important that they say 
that the blessing that you should say over the menorah is not the traditional blessing of Ladlik Neshel Hanukkah, but Ladlik Ne Hanukkah. So you get the three, the three initials coming, one of the other, Nun Chet and Nanot. Okay, so I've brought you now three examples. In one case, the Kabbalists say that the non-Kabbalists, like the Spanish and Portuguese community, is wrong in saying Slichot at night. In this example of Hanukkah, the Kabbalists say, right, you've said the blessing. They wouldn't tell you to go and say the, uh, repeat the, the blessing on, on, on the mineral all over again, but you could do more if you do it our way. And in the last example, example of Kaparot, the Spanish and Portuguese community of, uh, and others would say to the Kabbalists, what you're doing is, in the words of Shun Haruch, min hakshtot. It's, a, it's just a very silly thing to go and do, and there's no foundation within, within Judaism to go and do such a thing. I want to draw now a big line under this, because I said at the outset, people will always remember Shavashemtok again because of the Keteshemtok. And it is his largest and most complete and most famous work. But it's not the only thing that he left. And there's one achievement that is still largely manuscript that I want to go and talk about very, very briefly. I mentioned this in his period in Cairo, he found an early edition of the Shulhan Rukh, And he found that his, the, the, text, the, the text of the Shulhan Rukh nowadays had, had at least one difference to early editions. Somehow in the course of printing, things got twisted, probably on purpose, to go and suppress what uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of Shulhan had to go and say. And so he decided that he wanted to go and track all the changes that he could find from the earliest editions of the Shulhan Aruch to the modern printed edition, which he tried to go and do to the best of his ability. And he had to help him a manuscript, which he said was in Ramsgate, of part of the Shulhan Aruch, uh, a manuscript version that was written in the lifetime of the author. And it must have been very shortly after it was written, because very shortly after it was written, it got, uh, it got to printing. So how he got a fragment of it, I don't know. There is a problem, though, that this fragment is untraceable. It's not in the library of Montefiore College. It was never in the library of Montefiore College. I know that because I had correspondence with the librarian. So where it is, I don't know. And he had early print editions of the Shalaluch, and he wrote this vast commentary where he goes through all of the changes in the Shalaluch that he can find and any differences that, he, uh, that they could make in the air in, 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 in the halacha or in Jewish practice. And I'll give you an example. It's something that he discusses in the, in the Kedesh Shem Tov in the first volume. We make a blessing and count the Omer, and then we count the Omer for 49 days between Pesach and Shavuot. And we count today's the first day, today is the second day, today is the third day of the Omer. What happens after day, after day seven? You'd say Hayom Shmona Yamim. First of all, La Omer or Ba Omer. If you're a Sephardi, you're going to say Ba Omer. We don't say La Omer. We, um, so we say, we say La Omer, not Ba Omer. And so the, the 33rd day for us is not La Ba Omer, it's La La Omer. And he traces this change from the, from, from the Lamed, which is in the original version, to the, to, to, to the bed and tells us in which printing that he found it in. Also, when we count the Omer, there again on the eighth day, we say, Hayom Shmona Atrela, Shmona Yamim La Omer, Shehem Shavuah Echad, Vyom Echad. And Safadim will cut there. The Ashkenazim will add on an extra word. They'll say, Hayom Shmona Yamim La Omer, Shehem Shavuah Echad, Vyom Echad, La Omer, or Ba Omer. But this Ba'omer is not really necessary because it's self-understood that it's, it's the eighth day and you've already counted it. It's, it, 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 it's, a, it, it's the eighth day of the Omer. So why do you need to say it's the Omer again? And then again, traces this to a, uh, a quirk in the printing, either by on purpose or by accident. And how does it become incorporated into, into, into the liturgy? The one thing, though, that he perhaps didn't give attention to in all of his Research is how 
how did these changes occur? Why should a printer go and change? If he sees in front of him, lag la omer, why should he change it to lag ba omer? And here I want to bring a suggestion to you, which may account for some of the changes that we have in our liturgy. The liturgy is so vast that it cannot be transmitted accurately by any way other than printing. And if you print, you make a printing mistake, the printing mistake is going to be multiplied by the thousand. A Jewish, a Jewish scribe or Jewish compositor would have a job of preparing a text, but he would also try and correct the text in front of him to the best of his abilities. If he wouldn't come from a place where the custom was to go and say, today is the day of the Omer and, and count it La Omer, he would put a lambert there if he saw a bet. And the other way around, if he saw a bet and he knew it should be a lambert, thought it should be a lambert, that's what he would put in. And so what scribal practice or printing would go and do was that in the, at the place where the corrector is, he would try and make a correction himself, a hyper-correction, according to the mihag of the, the place that he was. And so every time a manuscript was reproduced, it wasn't necessarily reproduced faithfully. The scribe or the compositor might have thought he was doing a faithful job, but not necessarily the case. And so because of this, numerous variances became institutionalized into the Hebrew liturgy. And I'll give you another one further example, which he discusses in the Keteshem talk. He talks about the liturgy of Yom Kippur. And he finds that the Sephardim of the, of the Spanish and Portuguese, Spanish and Portuguese Sephardim and the Sephardim of the Middle East have a different tradition. We say in the Amidah, Baharisha, Kulo, Ka'ashantikle, or Ba'ashantikle. Obviously, between a Bet and a Chav, there is a difference, which is a very easy difference to go and creep into the liturgy. One reflects the language of the Pasuk and the other one doesn't. So the one that reflects the language of the Pasuk is more likely to be correct. And the other one is just an error, which is understandable. And this is how mistakes crept into the liturgy through either through copyist errors or through a faulty oral transmission or a compositor trying to go and make a hyper-correction to the text. Apart from that, he left us with a lot of other manuscripts, uh, a lot of, lot of other manuscript things, which hopefully will be brought to the press soon. Uh, he, he wrote various commentaries uh, on, on the on the that we mentioned. Also, he wrote responsa, which are waiting to be published, and also a fair amount of writing on medieval Hebrew poetry. And to, but, but to me, the greatest, his greatest achievement that he'll always be known for is the Ketesh Shem Tov, but perhaps his greatest achievement in his life was the commentary on the Shulchan Aruch, where he preceded the work of modern scholars who only now are bringing out new editions of the Shulchan Aruch in, 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 in the last few years, where all the variant texts and changes in the texts are being listed. And he seemed to have been light years ahead from anyone else, light years ahead of his time, and possibly not always understood in a fair light, either by his contemporaries or by the, or, uh, by the audience today. And with that, I want to go and throw the floor open for whoever would like to ask any questions. Thank you. Thank you for that extremely informative presentation. Uh, if anyone has any questions, they can unmute. Oh, we have uh, Gregory. Hi, yes. Um, thank you very much for this. But I'm curious, is the commentary at all available in print today? Or is it just something you'd find like on Hebrew books someplace? You won't even find it on Hebrew books. What happened was that in 1940, two simani were printed in the Journal of Monte Tourie College called Yehudit. And they're, they're available on an external hard drive. Uh, called Otsara Hochma, which is commercially available. The other is still in manuscript. He mentions it in various parts in the Ketishemto, but to edit it is going to take several years of work. And 
I'm not quite there yet. I'm, it's something that I want to go and do in, the, in, in, in my lifetime, but when it'll get done, I, when you'll see the light of day, I don't know. But he, uh, other than this manuscript copy uh, and, and the references that he makes in the Ketesh Shemdok and the bits that were published in the magazine who did, it's not available, no. Any other questions? I'll ask, uh, what exactly was the purpose of the Keter Shem Tov, other than sort of being a, uh, a nice collection that's very, very interesting and valuable I mean, game in the area, but did he have a specific purpose? Yes, he writes in volume three what his purpose was, and that is that when he came to Manchester, he was exposed to Jews, practicing Jews, who didn't know what, had no Kabbalistic input into their prayers. And he came from a family that was, uh, himself was a, was a very, uh, of capitalist of repute. And he came from a family, four generations or five generations of, of capitalists of repute. And he writes in the third volume of his complete and utter surprise, he went to this place called Manchester. And there was this whole collection of people who had never imagined existed, who, want, who had no capitalistic input into the press. So how can this be that Kabbalah is the kernel of Judaism? It's, inner and most sacred heart, how could it be that there's a group of people who willfully exclude it from anything to do with their liturgy? And when he was in Jerusalem, he'd encountered the Yemenite Jews who followed faithfully the teachings of the Rambam, who didn't have anything very much Kabbalistic in their prayers. But other than that, he never imagined or never dreamed that there would be a group of Sephardim from Spain, which is the same place that he came from, uh, his family came from, who had no, no Kabbalistic input in their prayers at all and did things that were quite contrary to the, going, to the teachings of the Kabbalah. And so maybe it was his way of trying to work through this problem. And in all fairness, in the Ketesh Hemdov, he's very even-handed. He doesn't openly condemn the Spanish-Portuguese Jews. He's very tolerant of them. And every quirk of their minhag, or anyone else's minhag, he tries to find some justification for it within, 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 within the framework of... Uh, uh, that he's got. There's only one place where there's a mistake in the Spanish and Portuguese prayer book was printed in London by Dr. Gaston. In the volume of Sukkot, he mentions that on the first day of Sukkot, in Kiddush, you should say Shechianu. And he's, he, he mentions the stark one. This obviously was a printing mistake. It's never been in any prayer book before or after that. And in the vision of the prayer book, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was corrected, but he, this is a warning there to the people who are responsible for printing the prayer book, they should be careful to delete this next time. But other than that, he has no problem with any custom. He finds a justification for it or a reason for it or some slight support for it. He's very tolerant, very easygoing. But at the time when he came to Manchester, he was somewhat jolted by this attitude. Okay. Thank you so much. We're uh, going to close it for tonight. Um, Dr. Shasha, you mentioned that people can find you on uh, Facebook after. Yes, sure. I, I'm on Facebook. If anyone has any questions they want to go and ask that I didn't cover, I'm very happy to go and answer them. Thank Perfect. you very much. Thank okay, you. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.